Second Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly, rightly dividing the word of truth. Good evening. It is great to see you tonight. We're always thankful for your presence. I spoke with Siri. She apologized for the outbreak this morning. <laughs> Actually, I found a way to turn her off, so hopefully she won't be interrupting us anymore. Our uh, subject tonight is uh, a beginning of some thoughts relative to understanding the Bible, and so for uh, nothing better to call it, these are just tips to understand the Bible. That really is the point, and we'll be going over some tonight, and in the weeks ahead, we'll be talking more about that. Bible reading is great, and I'm a fan, and thank you for those who are reading the Bible. I know many people are. I would urge that reading the Bible is essential. In fact, it is the place we have to start. If you're going to understand the Bible, you have to become familiar with its contents. You have to know the people, the places, and the events, the background, when events occur. It matters when something occurs in the Scripture or when something is said, given the periods of law or dispensations that we read about in the Bible. The background to these events, you have to know God, His character, His nature, His plan. Ultimately, what's called the mystery in the Scripture is being revealed. And so these things are exceedingly important. The only way you get to know these things is by being familiar with them. The way you become familiar is to read the Bible over and over and over again. But that is not the end point. Once you become familiar through reading continuously, and then you study. And so study digs deeper. If reading is a survey of the land, then studying would be finding a particular spot of land and then digging down and drilling into that area, into a particular area, a word or a topic or an individual or something like that. This is now searching or mining, excavating the contents, digging deeper into the text. And so again, over the next several weeks on Sunday evenings, we'll just look at some tips to hopefully help us to do that. They're general in nature, but helpful to remember as you study. It'll be a series of five, at least that's what's in my mind now, five things to know. And when I say they are general, that's the beginning. The reason for that, well, number one, that's just the way my mind works. Kind of start with the general and then try to move to the specific. Try to break down things into their least common denominator. It helps me to understand, and so that's just generally the way I approach Scripture and talk to people when we study the Bible. So these things are not intended to insult you. You probably know them already, but they are general and basic. Let's begin. Number one, you may have something else to do. No, not tonight. They told me, preach as long as you want. They'll be fine. <laughs> Nothing's going on. Five things, general in nature. Number one, again, you know these things. It is this. As you're studying the Bible, you have to come to a conclusion about God. God is. That's number one. Draw a conclusion and make a commitment. Now, again, I realize that, of course, there is a God. But listen, you'd be surprised, I was, at how many people believe but haven't made up their mind. If there is no God, everything else is pointless. In fact, you would wonder what we're even doing here. 
If we're only animals, nothing we do ultimately matters. If there is no eternal life, then nothing in this life actually matters. No, not ultimately. And the Scripture actually makes this point. Verse Corinthians 15 and verse 19, Paul says, if in this life we only have hope, then we are of all men most miserable. Paul's point is the life that we're living, if it ultimately has no meaning, it's absolutely pointless, and we're miserable for trying to live that way. And since God is and we are made in His image and we will be raised, understanding His Word then is essential. And that's what the apostles went out and preached. They went to places where people didn't believe in God, and that was the discussion before there was any other. You can see it very clearly in Acts chapter 17 as Paul is in a place full of idolatrous individuals, philosophers of all people who have a view of something. They have a multitude of idols, and Paul says, I see you're very religious. I see you're exceedingly superstitious, but you have an inscription to the unknown God. And I'd like to talk to you about that God. And then Paul says, God that made the world and all things that are therein. And he began to preach about not some random God, Jehovah, the creator of heaven and earth. He ended that chapter by saying several things. One, he says he made us to seek him and find him, though he's not far from every one of us. Another thing he said is he's given evidence in that he raised Jesus from the dead. But then he said he's also going to judge us he says we are his offspring, and so he cannot be gold or silver or carven or graven with man's devices. Now, why am I telling you this? Because after preaching for 30 years, I have met many Christians, unfortunately, who believe but don't know why they believe. They don't have evidence for that belief. They're adults with children's faith. These people are sincere, but they're often ignorant about why they believe what they believe. They've given They've been inherited their faith, and they've been indoctrinated, but they don't actually know. And if you're going to understand, you really have to settle the issue once and for all. God is or he is not. To do so and come to this conclusion, you have to investigate the evidence. The world is here. How did it get here? If you haven't investigated that and fleshed it out and come to a conclusion, you need to do that. You're here. How did you get here? You're not an animal. You're different than animals. But why are you different? Life is eternal. Matter is not. You have to know that. Life comes from life and that of the same kind. The world is designed. It manifests intelligent design. But that means there's a designer. You're intelligent. You didn't come from something that's not intelligent. Objective morality exists. Therefore, there has to be some perfect standard to measure it by. Lying is always wrong, not sometimes, not situationally. It's always wrong. Murder is always wrong. Rape is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. And on and on the list goes. And that's very different than saying, I like McDonald's. I prefer Burger King. That's very different than lying and murder and stealing. I'm always confused by Christians who pander to evolution. It just confuses me. Make up your mind. It's one or the other, but it's not both. The evolution we are taught in school, a big bang, 
a primordial soup, chemicals giving rise to life, not small changes within an organism or within a being, not that, no. That evolution that says whole organisms became new and different organisms. That evolution and creation are mutually exclusive and the twain shall never meet. If you've never investigated this, you need to. You've got to. I did not know when I was growing up in the Lord's church, I did not know there was a thing called apologetics. I didn't know there was a field of study where Christians had gone into all of these different fields and studied and brought out evidence that there is a God in heaven. I didn't know that. Do you know that? And if you do know that, have you investigated that? There's an entire group of brethren who dedicated themselves to just that study. It's a website. You can find it, apologeticspress.org. Oh, you've got to spend some time there if you haven't made up your mind. This seminar we're going to have is just one in the area of this very wide breadth of study. But then there are preachers and elders you could talk to. There's the scriptures you could check. Acts 14, the apostles talked about it. Paul says he's not left himself without witness. He's done good in the world. Paul is talking about evidences for the God of heaven. Does the same in Acts 17, Psalm 8, Psalm 135, on and on and on it goes. There's theism, the belief in God, and there's atheism. There is no God. These things are mutually exclusive. You can't be on the fence about this. There are some saints inside of church buildings who don't believe in God, or at the very least, they're not sure. Young or old, you have to do your work. You have to investigate and check the evidence. One more thought before I move to number two. As you're checking the evidence, read their material. Listen to them talk. One of the things that's very telling is when they talk, on the one hand, they will say with great certainty, this happened X billion of years ago, and then this happened, and this happened, and then this happened. And when you read a little closer and begin to get pointed as to how did it happen, when did it happen, who was there to see it, explain it to me. You'll start to read words like perhaps, maybe, possibly, seems like it could have been. Oh, that's not the way you're taught, though, in school. That's the way they prove it. They teach it one way. They defend it by guesses and another. There is one body of material in the world. Everybody goes to the same pile and investigates the bones. The reality is they have their minds made up before they go, and then they come out of what they study with what they claim to find. Listen, you've got to make up your own mind here. Don't do yourself the disservice of being around and near the Lord and his people and, his, and, and the God of heaven and on the fence as to whether or not you actually believe he is. Number two. There is a God, but number two, God spoke. God didn't just wind up the world and leave it, deism. He didn't do that. Instead, God communicated with his creation. That's what the scriptures claim. That's what they say. Have you made up your mind on this one way or the other? They don't say it could be, it seems like it might be. No, they come right out and affirm. These are God's words, nothing short of that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, as the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy talks about his faith and that he had heard it from a child and that his mother and grandmother gave it to him and taught it to him and he sure it dwells in him, he says this, he says, you've known it from a child 
And now he says, I'm sure it dwells in you as well. Paul then says, all Scripture is inspired of God. The idea literally is all Scripture is breathed out by God. They're his words that God spoke. Peter would say the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Sometimes it might be the case that people think it's a new thing to doubt the Scriptures. Peter was clearly aware that there were individuals who doubted the accuracy and truthfulness of their words. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 14, Peter says, knowing this, shortly I must put off this tabernacle. He goes on to say in verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now, why would he tell us that? He says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. Who would accuse you of that, Peter? Peter goes on and begins to give evidence and evidence and evidence that this is God's Word. God spoke it. If the Scripture is not God's Word, if the Scripture is not inspired, if the Scripture is not reliable, then please understand this. The apostles lied, and they knew it. They would have known they were lying. They would have been saying God said it, and they would have been knowing at the exact same time God didn't actually say it. We made it up. It's that discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the resurrection is being discussed, and the apostles have been going around teaching and affirming that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In fact, they began teaching it in the very place he was crucified. But they didn't stop there. They went from Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and they went to the uttermost parts of the world proclaiming that message. In 1 Corinthians 15, there were some people in Corinth who did not believe it. And the Apostle Paul begins a discussion here in defense of that. And among the things he says is, if it's not true, we'd be lying. You have your Bibles, look there in verse number 12 of 1 Corinthians, he says this, Now, if Christ be preached, that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? He said, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Let's begin there. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is still in the grave. Let's start with that, Paul says. But there's more. If Christ is not risen, then is our preaching vain. But what did they respond to? They responded to the preaching. And so he says, if our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not, if the dead rise not. The apostle Paul understood Listen, if we're just going around making this stuff up, then we're lying. He understood that. He understood the charge to be serious enough that by inspiration defended it. And Paul gives evidence after evidence after evidence in that very chapter. The prophets would have lied. It seems strange indeed for there to be Christians, people in the Lord's body, who sometimes denounce the Scripture as unreliable, untrustworthy writings of men but they try to live by it. They try to hold people to parts of it. They try to worship God. And uh, the God of an unreliable, untrustworthy, dishonest story made up by men, 
The apostles would have done no such thing. Peter says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, and we made known unto you the coming of our Lord. We didn't do that. Paul says, John says, we saw the resurrected Christ. In fact, the evidence is we suffered the loss of all things for just that account and just that preaching. They were threatened in Acts chapter 4. They were beaten in Acts chapter 5. And by Acts chapter 7, Stephen is murdered. For what? Preaching Jesus. Now, if it's not true, how would one explain that? The only way that that makes sense is if it's true, but if it's not true, it makes no sense. And what the apostles are saying is, we wouldn't go around saying it if it weren't true. Let's, have you made up your mind about these matters? God is, number one. God spoke, number two. Number three, God spoke in words. What do you mean? Humans don't communicate telepathically. We use words to express our thoughts. God does the same thing. And while God has spoken in diverse ways, Hebrews chapter 1, God used words to communicate his message to humanity. Scripture is the mind of God revealed to men. Christianity is not mystical. You and I are not asked to feel, to think, to guess about God, to interpret the tea leaves, to read the shaking of the dice and to put our finger in the air and check the direction of the winds. That's not what we're asked to do. No, what we're asked to do is read. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 through 13, the Apostle Paul talks about God giving revelation. In fact, we wouldn't know his mind unless he revealed it. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse number 4, talking about that same mystery, tucked away in the mind of God, completely unknown to man, how would man come to know it? God's revealed it unto us, and Paul says, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of God. It was hidden in ages past, but now it's revealed. And when you read it, you can understand my knowledge in the mystery. God spoke in words. We don't feel God to come to know him. We don't experience God to come to know him. The prophets, the apostles understood and proclaimed they were relaying God's words to man. 2 Samuel 23, 2 David wrote, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The Old Testament and the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament and the New Testament, breathed out by God. The prophet David, though he is not referred to often that way, he is in Acts chapter 2, therefore being a prophet, Peter says about David. And it's David who says, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Well, what came out of your tongue? The, the word of God. Jeremiah is told the same thing. God said to Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth. God spoke. God spoke in words. Number four. God spoke in known languages. If God spoke in words that we couldn't understand, well, it'd be a very little good to us. But the languages of Scripture are known, human languages. Humans spoke them, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, everybody. They knew them. They're known, understandable languages. A tongue is a language. You can see it in Acts chapter 2. When the apostles began to speak, the Bible describes it as those who heard them, they heard them speak. In fact, their question is, how do we hear these men speak in our tongues? How can we understand them? Are not all these men Galileans? 
How do we hear them speak in our tongues? 19, I believe, nations, they're listed, and they are hearing these men speak their languages, and they're understanding it. They're hearing them speak the wonderful works of God. It seems to be the case, and it's often the case, that unfortunately, people often want what they can't have while neglecting what they do have. And so I've heard people say things like, well, I want to speak the tongues of angels. Question, are you an angel? 1 Corinthians 13 is where that phrase is found. The Apostle Paul says in verse number 1 of that chapter, though I speak with the tongues of men, languages, known languages, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, angels have a language. Great. But I'm not an angel. You're not an angel. What's Paul's point? It's not to emphasize the tongues of angels. That's not the point. The point is the rest of the verse and chapter. The point is, even if I could, even as a human being, if I had the ability to speak and communicate with heavenly beings, angels, if I understood their language, I could speak to them and they to me, if I had that ability and didn't have love, then I'd just be making noise. That's the point. The rest of the verse says, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on from there, talking about abilities one could have, but without love, they are being useless and having no point or merit at all. God spoke. God spoke in languages. God spoke in known languages, languages you and I can understand. And then number five, God spoke in propositional language. The word propositional means relating to statements or problems that must be solved or proved to be true or not true. That's how God spoke. So that when you and I open up the Scriptures and begin to read it, there are things going to be here. There are statements and problems that are going to need to be solved. There are things that are either true or untrue, and you and I are asked to go through the Scriptures and reason properly out of them, drawing the conclusions that the evidence warrants. The words God used and the manner in which He communicates to us help us to do this. We're constantly being put in the position of making a decision. Consider the nature of Jesus. Is he divine or is he not? I've got to go to the Scriptures. There's a New Testament book, the book of John, I could read. The language is going to be clear. He has these abilities, this power. He does these things. He has this knowledge. He, is he or isn't he? He's claiming it over and over and over again. What's the evidence say? God created the world, or he didn't. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That's what you and I will be presented with. What's the evidence? There's the problem. How do we solve it? We go into the Scripture, we find out. When God did this, he did it in such a way so as not to confuse us. And so, in Scripture, when the Bible says something is up, it's up. It says it's down, it's down. In fact, it's almost as if God went through the world and put a label on everything so he'd identify it for us so we would know what it is. And then throughout his word, God takes up a topic and he explains it. 
thoroughly all the way through the Bible so you and I could understand. What is sin? God will define it for you. 1 John 3 and verse number 4, sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. Then he'll give us an example of it and say, that's sinful. And if we, if we get an entire list, the end of Galatians 5, it will say, and such like, so that you and I understand. He lists things, he gives examples of it, all to the end, that you and I might draw the right conclusion. There's different figures of speech in the Bible. There's metaphors and similes and allegories and parables and fables, all of this to help us. There's logic throughout the Bible. If this, then this. Exodus 19, 4 to 6 comes to mind. If you will obey my voice indeed, then you will be my people. What if I don't obey your voice? Well, then you will not be my people. We're asked to study, to come to these understandings. He explains, he expresses, he even questions people to test and see if they understand. How many times did Jesus talk to the Pharisees and there was a question and answer session backwards and forwards? Sometimes they asked him, tempting him, and sometimes he would turn the table and ask them. He would say things like, have you not read? What do you mean by that, Lord? I mean, you're supposed to read the Scriptures and then draw the right conclusion. Have you not read? He might ask a question like, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Well, who's supposed to come up with that answer, Lord? You are. You're supposed to go into the Bible and then read it. And you know what? They did. They went off to a corner to themselves, and they said, if we say of heaven, then he'll say, why didn't you believe it? You see the logic at work? If we say that, then he'll say. If we say it's from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe it? But if we say it came from men, well, we fear the people. They held John to be a prophet. So we'll just tell them, we don't know. All of that material in 1 Corinthians 15, you should read that chapter and listen to Paul's logic. He says, we're out here preaching the resurrection. We're out here saying he rose from the dead, and we're out here saying we saw him. How do some of y'all say there's no resurrection? And then listen to Paul line after line. If that's true, then this is true, and this is true, and this is true, and this is true, and this is true. Look at an example of it with me in Matthew 22, and listen to this interchange with Jesus and the Sadducees. I don't know who told me this first, but they said the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they're Sadducees. They are sad, you see. <laughs> sad indeed if you don't believe in the resurrection. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, they come to Jesus with this hypothetical question, the question I imagine that they had asked many times before, and they never got good answers, and so maybe they thought within themselves that this was the one. This will surely stump them. The same day, verse 23 says, came the Sadducees, they say there is no resurrection. Ask him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, raise up seed unto him, his brother. Now, there were with us seven brethren. The first one, he had married a wife, he deceased, and having no issue, left his wife and his brother, likewise took her, and he goes the second, all the way to the seventh, and finally the woman died, verse 27, and they ask in verse 28, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Jesus says two things. Number one, he says, you do err. You are mistaken. Why are they mistaken? He says, number one, you don't know the Scriptures. Number two, he says, you don't know the power of God. And then the Lord explains. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. 
And then he says, now, let's narrow it down a little further. Let's dig a little deeper. But as touching the resurrection, here's what you should know, he says. Have you not read that what was spoken unto, unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Wherewith we have read that, Lord, Exodus chapter 3, at the bush burning but not consumed when God met Moses out there and take off your shoes, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Didn't you read that? And if you did read it, what should have been your conclusion? Notice what the Lord says. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. How did Jesus deduce that by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, that that meant that these men were alive. Well, he's talking about the tense of the word. God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It would be a different conclusion if he had said, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, that would mean in the past I was their God, but I'm no longer their God. And so they would be dead and in such a way not existing. I used to be their God, but he didn't say I was their God. But neither did he say I will be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As if now that they're dead in some future way, I will somehow again be their God. But that's not what he said either. While these men were dead, God said to Moses, I am their God. And by using the present tense of I am, Jesus is saying that indicates that when God said that to Moses, though those men were dead, they were alive. That's what he's saying. When God met Moses at the bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive because God was still their God. And what Jesus says is God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. The expectation is that they would have read that and understood it. You do err, not knowing the Scripture. This is the nature of propositional language, that you and I are expected to dig down and begin to read. The Apostle Paul would do a similar thing in Galatians chapter 3 when talking about Christ, he will say in verse number 16, he saith unto seed, not unto seeds as of many, but unto one and to thy seed, which is Christ. Paul is making the case over the, the singular or the plural that Jesus is the only seed of which God has ever spoken about. They were to know that. Scripture will explain whether or not something is a parable. It'll tell us that. It'll tell us whether or not it's figurative. It'll tell us that. It'll explain whether something is allegorical. It'll tell us that. Galatians chapter 4, 21 to 31 is an allegorical. The word allegory means a representation of abstract ideas or principles by characters, figures, or events in a narrative, a dramatic or pictorial form. There is two women in Galatians chapter 4, one corresponding to Mount Sinai in Arabia, the other to Jerusalem, which is free. And there's Hagar, and there's Sarah. And Paul walks us all the way through with an explanation of this allegory, explaining exactly every form in detail. Here is the point. You and I don't decide what's allegorical. 
You and I don't start reading the Bible and then say, well, I heard a man do this. Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 to 14, there are four rivers mentioned by name, Pihon or Pihon or Gihon and Euphrates and Tigris. And I heard a man say, well, those rivers are four virtues, love, mercy, grace, and hope. They are not four virtues. They're four rivers. They're four rivers of water. That's what they are, and each one is named, and they're called rivers. You and I don't come to the Scripture and then decide what's allegorical. If there's an allegory, the Bible will tell us, and then explain it. If it's a parable, the Bible will tell us, and then explain it. If it's a fable, Judges 9, the Bible will tell us, and then explain it. We will not be able to understand the Bible if every person goes around deciding what is and what's not figured. No, the Bible will tell us. That's not the way God spoke. Scripture needs to be read. It just has to be. But that reading has to eventually give way to study. They got to start to dig down a little deeper into certain areas of the text if we're going to understand it. There is a God. Friends, you got to come to a conclusion on this. Don't spend your life wandering and guessing. Do the work and the evidence that God has spoken. He's spoken words. He's spoken known languages. You have in your hand. You have a copy. You have on your phone the very God-breathed word of heaven. You need to draw some conclusions on this matter. And we need to apply it properly. We read, we study, then we meditate. Part of the reason I, I'm saying these things and Part of the reason we'll keep talking about them is we keep talking about losing people. We keep talking about the church's failure, and somehow we seem to be shifting more and more the responsibility of the individual Christian. And I don't want us to do that. I cannot express to you deeply and profoundly enough how much your faith is your faith and how responsible each of us are for the development, the growth, the maturation, and the living of that faith. And no matter what anybody else does or says, nobody else will give an account for us on the day of judgment but us. Please, hopefully these tips will help in some way. Weeks ahead, we'll look at some more. Not a Christian tonight. We beg you, and I'm, I certainly am not ashamed to say we beg you. That's what we're doing, pleading with you, pleading with you to become a Christian, to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and began to give your life to him and turn your whole life into a labor and a service for the God of heaven through belief in his Son, repentance of the heart that's changed, godly sorrow leading you to that repentance, the confession of the name of Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. That's God's plan, and friends, you so desperately need to obey it. Thank God for the one who did this afternoon. If you are his child, please read the Bible, and then let's read and study and meditate and grow our faith, mature in our Lord and in his service. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.